following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Folks and friends, thanks for tuning in. We're doing a fun uh, crossover, if you will, here with our friends from Presbycast. So if you're listening to this on the Larger for Life platform, we're coming at you live from the Reformation and Worship Conference in Powder Springs, Georgia at Midway Presbyterian Church, PCA. And we're sitting down this morning with a friend and mentor of mine, Dr. T. David Gordon, who was a professor while I was a student at Grove City College a number of years ago. Although it's kind of funny, we were talking about this just yesterday. He was a professor at Grove City. I was a student at Grove City, but I never had him as a professor at Grove City. Uh, we got to know him, enjoyed a lot of great fellowship. Uh, he was a speaker at several different conferences with which I was involved, but he was never actually technically a professor of mine, although he's had a tremendous influence on my life, for which I'm thankful. And uh, so, T. David, I, I wore my Grove City cufflinks on, nice. uh, on with, with the suit here this morning, knowing full well that we were going to have this podcast <laughs> broadcast today, so we, I came ready. <laughs> Good for you. Came ready to, to represent Grove City College, not Grove City Community College, but the finest the finest undergrad institution that I've ever graduated from, <laughs> Grove City College. And uh, we're here to talk about, if y'all aren't aware of two of his works, um, we're going to talk a little bit about them. Two uh, shorter monographs, Why Johnny Can't Preach and Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. And if you haven't heard of those or if you haven't read those, I commend them to you. They're quite affordable. You can find them. We'll talk a little bit about where the titles come from, the origins of those works. And uh, we're going to do a little bit of analysis, I suppose, today, thinking about where we are now in terms of Johnny, as it's been circa 15 years since those books have been published. So, Brad? I think what uh, what we'd like to know is what's the state of, of, you know, we're talking about the ordinary means of grace here. We're talking about uh, uh, preaching, uh, the place of Scripture and good preaching, doctrinal preaching, uh, 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 but, but preaching that also applies uh, to the church and um, and the state of worship, which you know, we always say worship is not just singing, as many people think, but it's it's sort of a, a bellwether for how our worship is going, whether it's serious, whether it's thoughtful, whether it's reverent. So tell us why you wrote those books and, uh, you know, how you would update them if you did so today. It's okay, uh, Brad. I'll try to take them seriatim, seriatim that way and maybe take them in a chronological order. So the first... Uh, why Johnny can't sing, uh, preach, uh, how uh, the medium has shaped them, uh, the messengers. Uh, this grew out of my observations um, for nearly 20 years, um, from late high school into college, then through seminary, um, that I didn't think preaching was very well done. And um, I should probably remind that when you start becoming a candidate for the ministry, even before candidacy as a formal process begins, you approach Christian worship differently than others. Critically, I hope not in the negative sense, but, but we're asking why and how. And so a candidate for the ministry, a young man who has a sense of call, participates in church while also watching the whole thing with a different set of eyes than he had before. And... 
And I noticed over a number of years uh, a surprising amount of what I would have regarded as unsatisfactory preaching. That I couldn't tell from how a sermon was introduced where it was likely to go. It wasn't clear in conversations afterwards what it was about. Um, And then I attributed this to the fact that I was an aspiring minister myself, and I was just hypercritical. And then some events occurred, probably two uh, larger events occurred that made me think it wasn't just me. Um, One of them was that in a calendar year during, I think it was my doctoral studies, during a single calendar year I had two conversations with ruling elders who, who were in different churches looking for a minister, and both of these ruling elders were serving on the pulpit committee. And I would ask them, when I bumped into them at Presbytery, or whatever reason I bumped into them, how's the search going? And in both cases, unrehearsed and uncoordinated, the answer was the same. These ruling elders, good middle-aged men, sensible churchmen said, we just accept the fact that we won't find a good preacher, and so we're looking for a man with other good qualities. And I thought, well, here I'm a young man, hypercritical, but these are older, seasoned men, and they've basically said they're not likely to find a good preacher, so they're looking for a man with other qualities. So this was disturbing to me because it made me think maybe it wasn't me, just a young whippersnapper full of something and vinegar and this kind of a thing. Um, And so it was roughly at that time that I read uh, Robert Louis Dabney's uh, Lectures on Sacred Rhetoric. And if you get through the first two chapters where he has all the Latin titles for the various parts of an oration, which is why the book is no longer read, I think it's difficult to get through that, you get to the two chapters in which he enumerates seven cardinal requisites of a sermon. And he calls them seven cardinal requisites, not perfections or excellencies. This is just what they all want to do. This is requisite, right? Now, four of his seven traits that he mentions would be true, I think, of any public discourse. And three would be additional traits requisite of a sermon, but not necessarily of Rotary International or that kind of a thing. So the common traits, the four common traits, are unity, uh, order, movement, and point. And so for Dabney, a discourse had to have unity. There had to be some essential thing that the person was trying to explain or if it was a behavioral thing trying to promote. And and the test of whether a sermon has unity, I think, is if you ask ten people what was the sermon about, at least eight or nine ought to give you the same answer. Well, that sounds like a high number. Right. (laughs) Sounds like a high number. Right, you know. uh, So so I think Dabney was right. For a discourse to be a discourse, it has to be about something. And not something inscrutable, but something that's scrutable. Uh, And then it said it, it should have, I think he called it, Order, I would call it, you know, we probably call it arrangement or organization or something like that, order. That is to say, if, uh, if, if you have, let's say, three or four points, one should precede the others because the order in which you put them, point one can help you move through points two and three faster because of point one being point one and not point three. So all good orators think about the arrangement or order in which they want to put their subpoints to get to that single point. And then he very wisely referred to movement, uh, where if you've made point one adequately, move on to point two. 
if you stay there and tread water on point one, when your people are already there, their mind drifts because they don't have to follow you anymore because you've lost them. You also don't want to move so fast that they didn't catch point one before you get to point two. So this this is a judgment matter, he says, you know, uh, but it's critical to the effect of this. Then the fourth attribute that preaching would have with other public discourse, he calls a point. And he used the analogy of a, a ramming ship in the ancient world where all the timbers come to the prow so that the full weight of the tonnage of that boat when hitting another would be focused in that one place. Uh, and he calls this point. I respectfully think point is merely the result of having unity, order, and movement. I think it'll naturally arrive at point. So he could have listed six cardinal requisites, and I would have been content. But but that's fine. It, it, it's good to think about. So those are any public discourse ought to have those qualities. Dabney argued, uh, and I, and I argue. But a a sermon has to have three additional qualities. It must be expository, instructive and be evangelical in tone was this term, the expression that Dabney used. And so uh, it must be expository, that is to say, for the minister to be the mouthpiece of God, the herald of God. Uh, it must be demonstrable to his hearers and to the consciences of his hearers that what he is saying has the full authority of God. And so you could say a true thing and not ground it in Scripture, and the inherent truth of the thing might persuade you you might believe in due process, for instance, on good, rational, and reasonable grounds. But you, you, you cannot, I think your soul cannot be called to repent of a known sin unless you are persuaded that it's a violation of God's will and his word. And so Dabney insisted that a sermon be expositional as the only way of demonstrating to the hearers what you're saying is not just T. David Gordon's opinion or Sean's opinion or your opinion. This is God's word. Mm. And then he says a sermon should be instructive, that is to say, in the whole narrative from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, there are a lot of moving parts, and helping people see the relations of those parts is very important. Helping them understand why a certain thing is in the Scripture is very important. The human is not merely a reasoning being, but we are not less than a reasoning being. And so a sermon, he says, should be instructive. People should see something better intellectually than they had seen it before. And finally, he mentions evangelical in tone, which is a very quaint 19th century way of saying the whole thing should have a gospel focus. That is to say, the whole thing. You mean you mean gospel centered is not a, a 20th century <laughs> right? Not at all. Discovery? No, it is not. Wow. <laughs> for for him, the whole point well, is be. you know uh, the, the fundamental duty of all Christian heralds is to drive people lost in the first Adam to the only salvation that can be found in the second Adam, and so everything, every cog, every bolt, every nut in the Holy Scriptures is driving us there, and so. Dabney says that the whole force of any real Christian sermon is to drive people to be reconciled to God through Christ. Um, and so here's why that was so influential on my development and why the book was originally written. Now I knew not only that I was not just a hypercritical young man, and these weren't just two crabby elders serving on these pulpit committees who said we just 
expect not to find a good not, preacher. Not to deny the existence of crabby ruling elders. Right. Not at all to deny that. Right. Some of whom chortle weekly. But there, there, it's, been, it's been said that such crabby individuals uh, exist, especially in the Napark communions, I might add, excepting the ARPs who were very nice Presbyterians. Uh, so now I had not only my view and two elders' view, but a respected 19th century theologian. So respected that you may recall Archibald Alexander said that it was Robert Louis Dabney, not his colleague Charles Hodge, that Robert Louis Dabney was the finest instructor in theology in the United States. And in Europe, they, they compared him favor, favorably as a philosopher to Kant and to Jonathan Edwards. So he was a big deal, right? And I looked at his seven cardinal requisites and said, I've heard sermons that didn't have any of them. Mm. And I've rarely had heard a sermon that had all seven. So now is not just my subjective judgment that I smelled a rat. Now I thought, oh my goodness, here are traits that are testable traits that they're either there or they're not. And I rarely hear a sermon that has them all. And so as I continued to listen to the years, to preaching from Dabney onwards, I started noticing specific failures, not just a general, that wasn't a good sermon, but it, it didn't have unity. It, it, why in the world was it ordered it as it was, this, right? And so I just felt that the church was in a bad state because preaching was in a bad state. But I said, you can't write a book about that because you will look like a smart aleck, right? And I think I tend to look that way anyway. I didn't, didn't need to fuel the fire. I wasn't going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> so I wasn't going to write about it until I got diagnosed with uh, stage 3 colorectal cancer on January 4th, uh, 2004. Mm. Um, and as Diane and I drove back from the hospital from talking with the surgeon, uh, I didn't tell her, but, but I knew that the prognosis was probably not good because if it was good, he would have said, don't worry, 80% of the people with this are cured. And he didn't say anything. So I checked the American Cancer Society webpage when I got back home and noticed that my, uh, my odds were 25% to survive. So I think that means I had a 75% chance of not surviving. And that's when I thought, if I'm going to die in the next 10 or 12 months or sooner, is it right for me to leave the world without saying this? And that troubled me. And I thought, I think I need to say it. And if people dislike me for it, I'll probably be in the grave by then anyway. Mm. So both the coward in me and the churchman in me combined to write the book, I suppose. Uh, and, and so I set out to begin on my healthier days in those 11 months of treatment to begin pecking away at what I would like to do. And I was informed, of course, as a second book, by my studies of media ecology, not merely my studies about preaching and theology, but media ecology. So the subtitle of the book is The Media Have Shaped the Messengers, mm. Why Johnny Can't Preach, the media have shaped the messengers. And that's an allusion to Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Messenger. It's, yes. it's yes. A, uh, And, of course, the first part of the t- title, Why Johnny Can't Preach, goes back to Rudolf Flesch's book in the 1960s, Why Johnny Can't Read, and then in 1994, the co-authored book, Why Johnny Can't Write. And I thought, well, if we're, we're a culture that doesn't read well and a culture that doesn't compose well, doesn't write well, what does this mean for people who's calling is to read ancient texts mm-hmm. and to compose discourses about them, right? 
And so McLuhan says the medium shapes the message and the messenger, Mm -hmm. right? And so I was convinced that if we were in a culture that does not cultivate the sensibilities of reading texts carefully um, and it doesn't cultivate compositional skills, that probably explains why Johnny can't preach. Well, it's probably all gotten better because we all, you know, when Twitter went from 180 characters to two, or 140 to 280, and that doubled our reading. They've doubled the nonsense. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. that's right. Our communicative skills are, are illustrious yes, these days. They really are. So just to give you an anecdote historically, by contrast, my dad once told me that when he was in junior high school and high school, except for his mathematics class, he wrote a one-page composition for every class every week. Every week he, he was required to write a one-page summation of what he learned that week in that class. And I had college students, not Sean, of course, but I had college students who had probably never written a page, right? And Dad, who was just a businessman working for a pharmaceutical firm, A.H. Robbins, uh, he could still write a cogent business letter because he'd been taught composition. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it was very obvious that if we were a culture who, because of the visual media, television, film, and beyond, uh, doesn't cultivate the sensibilities of reading and doesn't cultivate the sensibility of writing, how can a minister read an ancient text well and convey well to others what it is that he's read? Right. And so that's what led to the writing of the book. Yeah. I'm glad you, you mentioned that, T. David. I was going to say I made the mistake as a, a novice in college when I read the subtitle, and presumably there might be someone out there as well, when you read that subtitle, How the Media Have Shaped the Messenger, you don't mean narrowly or specifically the news media, but rather media being the plural for medium, that all kinds of visual media have negatively affected our preaching discourse in these days, as opposed to written forms. That's correct. In the last eight or ten years that I taught media ecology, I taught it every year for 18 consecutive years. And I had to increasingly make the point in the introductory lecture each year that when a media ecologist uses the plural media or the singular medium, we do not mean the news media or the entertainment media. (laughs) We mean the medium, Mm -hmm. regardless of who's using it for what purpose. We mean the medium itself. How does uh, television convey something differently than a book, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're looking at media themselves and how they shape us. And, and in this case, how do they shape ministers? Mm-hmm. Isn't the way um, I've always thought of the medium of preaching, mm-hmm. you know, which would include you know, a pulpit decorum and the way you deliver, the way you the way you read and enunciate, and the, the seriousness with which you take it, and even where you deliver it, all things being equal, mm-hmm. from a pulpit or from from the floor, um, what you wear in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. I mean, because one of the things about Media studies. I mean, the the, the package, the container, uh, the wrapper um, has a huge effect, and so I've always thought of it in that way as well. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, now you know we we also we often talk in the Christian church of of our sin uh, as being pendulum like. We have a tendency to dwell at extremes and race through the middle, the way a pendulum does. It's sort of our version of Aristotle's golden mean, right? So almost all of my errors, whether intellectual or behavioral, uh, tend to be extreme. And you try to learn to avoid the extreme. So you kind of muddle your way into the closer to what's right. So in this case, for instance, 
style is not everything, and style is not nothing, mm-hmm. right? Style is not everything, and style is not nothing. Yeah. And you err, err on either of those extremes if you think that is the case, right? And so we have to recognize style is not everything, but it also is not nothing. And so, yeah, yes, the overall event of preaching is shaped by all sorts of additional uh, overtones about the, the, the demeanor and so forth. I don't mind teaching at a college level uh, wearing dress slacks and a sports coat, a shirt, and a tie. In the pulpit, I always wear a suit, sometimes three pieces, but always a suit. Now, that's a silly little thing, but in my dad's generation and for some people today, there's a difference between a sports coat and a suit. And if, it, if some people don't notice at all, that's fine. It won't hurt them. Mm-hmm. But for some people, the suit is a little more formal than a sports coat. And so the last thing we want to do is be an impediment because we've committed a stylistic error that might lose a small percentage of our group. But the basic sense, yes, that the, uh, the media shaped the messengers, what we're now saying is uh, if a person has never read literature carefully of any sort, sacred or otherwise, and hasn't been trained in how to do it, if he hasn't written a composition every week in every class and hasn't composed anything, how can a seminary in three years teach him to preach an expository sermon? Mm-hmm. And I think in the book I say it would be like trying to teach a dachshund to speak French. <laughs> it just can't be done. He doesn't speak, and he's German. And so he's, he's going to bark with a poor French accent uh, if you try to teach a dachshund to speak French. So what I was suggesting is it's, it's not necessarily the seminary's fault. It's pre-seminary and the shaping of one's sensibilities through other things that, uh, that caused Johnny, when he attends seminary, to possibly graduate with the ability to preach or not. So how, how would you... So what was your prescription then in the book... Uh, you weren't just pointing out the problem. And what's the progress of preaching been in uh, the, our you know, Presbyterian and Reformed world? I, mm. I'm sure you didn't exactly design on uh, reforming the preaching of the evangelical church and all of its uh, <laughs> facets and um, craziness. Uh, but so what, what did you prescribe then, and what's the state now? Yeah, so medically speaking, you've asked a question about prescription and diagnosis, I guess. So um, I mentioned a number of things in the book that I thought could help cultivate the sensibilities that would lead one to write better. Um, and the one that I got the largest amount of curious feedback from was when I suggested uh, reading poetry, mm. committing oneself to uh, a life of reading poetry. Because poets are very careful, not only in their use of words, but especially in the oral quality of our language. They devote themselves to a poem that, if it's well-written, can be read orally, and it's a wonderful experience. And so um, many of us write informational stuff. Poets also try to say a thing well. So are you saying there could be alliteration beyond the uh, the four points of the sermon? Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, Psalm a lot of guys Slender. Yeah. yeah. And so my hard. little handout this morning on Psalm 118 is showing the repetitions. Mm-hmm. And 
ESV very faithfully uh, follows the Hebrew on that point, on that particular one. It's really neat how they preserve those repetitions. So uh, uh, since the sermon is an oral event, an oral and oral event, uh, uh, reading poets helps cultivate one's command of English, not only to be precise with it, but to be understood. Um, otherwise, you develop an uncanny capacity to put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Hmm. And, and you don't want to do that if you can avoid it. Uh, so I knew this would be a hard sell, so I was very gratified to find um, Poetry as a Means of Grace, written by Charles Grosman or Osgood. And, and it was the publication of the uh, Stone Lectures he gave at Princeton Seminary in 1940. The book didn't come out to 41, but it was the Stone Lectures. So here he was 15 years before commercial television, urging the Princeton Divinity School students at the time to become lifelong readers of poetry hmm. for the reasons I just mentioned. And yet their culture had not yet degraded them as much as ours has on this particular point. And yet he was arguing that what happens is just the way we pick up the native accent of the town in which we're reared, um, so also all of the English that comes to us becomes the English that eventually filters back out. And so if there's some Milton in there, if there's some Shakespeare in there, if there's some Dunn in there, if there's some George Herbert in there, um, then eventually our mind intuitively and unconsciously benefits from that, and it affects the nature of our oral use of the English language. Mm -hmm. And if he gave the Stone Lectures, which were prominent lectures at Princeton, right? Kuiper gave his lectures there, famous, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. justly famous uh, for that. That at least caused my readers to say, he's probably wrong, but he's not idiosyncratic, because someone was saying this 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now 80 years ago, but at the time, 60 years ago. Right. Um, and I still think that is the case. I used to play the airport game. You can't play it anymore because everyone's potted up or has a smartphone. <laughs> but prior to 20 years ago, when I was waiting for a flight in an airport anywhere, I, sometimes you small talk with a person, or sometimes on the flight, on the runway, waiting no, for it no to go. No pun intended with yes, small talk. That's right. And uh, <laughs> so uh, sometimes after five or ten minutes of chatting with someone, I would say, um, uh, what have you read recently? And the person will say, well, I didn't mention that I read, but I do love to read. And I said, and they said, how did you know? And I said, your English is the English of a person who reads. Uh, it's fairly free of neologisms and colloquialisms that are the rage of the moment. You know, mm -hmm. you use valley girl speech, right? And so you, you've read some people who had command of English beyond 1995, that kind of thing, way back. And they said, yeah, you, you're right, I do. And sometimes the conversation continued. I remember three cases where I said to the person, um, do you write professionally or do you just journal from time to time? And then the person would look at me and say, I've been journaling on an almost daily basis for 20 years. How did you know? How did you know? Right? And I said, writers have the occasion to pause before they write. We can't do that orally. We have to take the equipment available to us. But the writer can decide how to express what it is that he or she wishes to express. And so writers uh, have a, a greater command of the English language when they speak. 
because they've now accustomed themselves to making the right choices. If they make it right ten times in writing, eventually that'll have notes their spoken use. And then on two occasions, this was really fun, uh, that, the conversation continued. On two of those occasions, I said, was it Latin or Greek that you studied when you were younger? Hmm. And then the person, one, one woman said, and you'll have to edit this, I suppose, but this woman said, those damn nuns made me study five years of Latin. <laughs> right? <laughs> We're leaving that in. Yeah, that was fine. And, and they said, how did you know that I had studied Latin? Hmm. And I said, because they decline all their nouns and adjectives for case, number, and gender. And the people who don't know whether to say her and I went to Walmart or she and I went to Walmart or her and me went to Walmart, you know, right? uh, the people who are confused about English are because we don't decline our nouns as thoroughly as Greek and Latin do. But the people who study Greek and Latin, they always get the pronouns correct. They even know to use a noun with a demonstrative pronoun. They don't say this, they say this book, right? They use a noun with a demonstrative pronoun. Uh, so I said, you obviously had studied Latin. Now, I enjoyed playing that little game and I had fun with it. I haven't played it in 20 years now because everyone's just in their own world on the on a flight or waiting for one. You can talk to strangers anymore. Right. Um, uh, but it was a, an opportunity for me to realize that I could guess what media had shaped total strangers. Mm-hmm. I could tell whether they were readers or not, whether they were writers or not, and whether they had studied an inflected language or not. And further, I think anyone could have done what I did, except for the third category. I think you might have had to study an inflected language to notice that someone else had. Mm. But I think... Most people can tell whether they're speaking with a reader or not or and whether they're speaking to a writer or not. Mm-hmm. Can you tell when you're dealing these days with a midwit podcaster? Uh, at least in one circumstance, uh, <laughs> there's glaring evidence to make a compelling case uh, that, that I can do. So, so that was the prescription. The prescription was, yeah, do, do anything you can to improve your compositional skills and your reading skills. So uh, I think I recommended journaling. And not that every day you have to have a journal entry, but to get in the habit of recording your thoughts. All around the house, I've got notebooks of all sorts and fountain pens out the wazoo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I'm, I'm just now in the habit of when I have a thought, I don't get to a year, but when <laughs> I have one, uh, write it down. Well, we just we just tweet them. That's what we do now. Yeah, or, right. or we text it to the group of yeah. 10 friends. That's right. Uh, so I think I recommended journaling and then reading poets. And if, if uh, Osgood in 1940 thought, and he said this, if you're going to have a long, fruitful ministry, you should be a lifelong reader of the great poets. Hmm. You know, and you're not just talking about quoting Robert Frost or somebody, no. which is what, you know, used to hear that in sermons. And it's yeah. very sentimental. Mm-hmm. That's what some people think when they think yes. poet. But I think Beowulf. Yeah, right. Because when I read Beowulf uh, in the Seamus Haney uh, translation, the alliteration and mm-hmm. the force of mm-hmm. those of those simple Anglo-Saxon words, and you, you get that in Winston Churchill sermons too. Yes. Uh, so, don't be scared off by the. I would just say, don't be scared off by the concept of poetry. That's correct. Because it's not right. what, it's not what your girlfriend wrote, you know, when she was sixteen. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. You're you're exposing yourself to those people who had mastered the sound of our language and how to compose it in such a way that th- they could be effective. Uh, I think the, the, the greatest public address given is not uh, Reverend Dr. King's. I think it is actually uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address. It was March 4th. Uh, so it was just 
a month before he was assassinated, and he had barely won uh, a close election because the people in the North were tired of burying their sons. Mm. Um, but it's a fascinating thing. I, I counted it once, you know, it's two pages roughly. Uh, the lengthiest sentence has 72 words. The briefest sentence has four. And the one with four words follows a sentence which has, I think, 58 words. Oh, wow. And he says, a year ago on this occasion, and some were trying to introduce, without a war, and others, this, that, and the other, with war and so forth, and the war came. Four words. And the war came. Hmm. Boom. Drops like a bomb after 58-word sentence. While this and that and this, that, and the other, all highly qualified, and, and the war came. Boom. So he knew when 72 words were needed, and he knew when four words yeah. were needed. Right? So he had mastered his command of the English language through reading Shakespeare and the King James Bible. Hmm. So how much of a, def, uh, a detriment is it now that we don't have, you know, kind of a, a shared translation of the Bible that everyone knows? I mean, I grew up with the King, you know, I went from the King James Bible as a little boy mm-hmm. to the Living Bible. That was just quite a jump. Yeah. And wow. then, then back we called the, it the green thing. Yeah, back to the King James and then, you know, to New American Standard. And then I became PCA and it was ESV. And now I'm back to the, the New American Standard. But I like the earlier version of the New American Standard where they had the, the these and thous in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. But that's got to be a detriment because several of the people we've mentioned, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, um, they all had a common uh, internalized uh, memory of King James English. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it certainly is not perfect, but that certainly has hurt us. Yeah, I think so. Uh, the difficulty would be among the existing ones or the one that you produce, uh, what translation choices do you make? So um, the uh, if... The reader's accessibility is your primary concern. You use a smaller vocabulary stock, shorter, briefer sentences, and this kind of a thing. Uh, and representing faithfully the original is your primary concern. You might have a, heart, a larger vocabulary mm-hmm. uh, and more lengthy sentences. Um, but uh, Dabney, we mentioned Dabney earlier, in his uh, essay or article on the Doctrinal Variations in the Greek New Testament. I think that was the title, not too appetizing, where he's actually dealing with text criticism. Um, He argues that the advantage of the received text to him was not that it was necessarily the best text, but it was one that we could all refer to. So so he made this kind of argument from the Catholicity of the Church that Mm. we all had a common text, we could all refer to it and be in on the conversation. Hmm. So there would be some merit to that, uh, especially if the if the one we chose was a high standard of English. Um, when I was pastoring, RSV went out of print uh, because the National Council had rights to it and to the NRSV, and they wanted people to read the NRSV. Mm-hmm. So some of the folks in my church gently complained that their young children had a hard time following in the reading of the Scripture because it was a different translation. And could I choose a translation that was still in print? And so I tried the New King James Version for about a year. I tried the NASB for about a year and had to reject them both on the ground that they're impossible to read aloud. They, they're very accurate, very faithful to the original, but they're extremely awkward English. And you don't know it until you read it aloud a lot and you find yourself tongue-tied yep. frequently. Yep. 
We, that doesn't happen with the ESV, doesn't happen with the NIV. Those are different translations for different reasons. But um, so the, the King James hit it almost perfectly. Goldilocks would have been thrilled, right? Because it's a very high standard of English. Um, and yet it's very clear. And for, and for its day, 17th century, early 17th century English is quite readable, very accessible. The ESV probably comes closest to that tradition today in being of a high standard of English and yet accessible. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, I would, I would concede the point. If we had a single English Bible and if it were a, of a high quality, there would be some advantages to it. All right, so... Um as we you know, wrap up the next 10, 15 minutes. Um, now, did you want my diagnosis of how things are now? Sure, that's After what we're my, getting to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So how are things? How, how, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, uh, and I'll chat about this later, too, in a more public session. Uh, but uh, the, the substance of the book, the germ of the book, Why Johnny Can't Preach, was 2004 during my cancer. So we're very close to now a 20-year mark. Um. And what I have found in recent years is, at least in the Napark churches and the Bible-believing churches from the confessional Lutherans, such as Missouri Synod and Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, and among Baptists like Dr. MacArthur and that sort of a stripe, um, I would say that people who are 60 to 65 and older don't preach well and never did. And the men that I hear who are roughly 40 and under are preaching very well. Uh, that they almost always get at least four or five of Dabney's cardinal requisites now. And so uh, they are committed to exposition, and they do a good job of it, and their sermons are good, solid sermons. Now, I take no credit for it. The credit, I think, is due to two people. I think it's due uh, to uh, Dr. Chappell's book on Christ-centered preaching and to Haddon Robinson's book on expository preaching. Hmm each of which had appeared, I think, before my book. But I think now we've seen 25 to 30 years of the effect of those two volumes mm-hmm. on ministerial trainees. Um, and now the, the younger men in the ministry, once they get through their first four or five stage frights and issue with that kind of thing, but by the time they've been doing it for years or so, they are predictably good, solid, sound sermons. There's more good preaching in my presbytery, Ascension Presbytery, north of Pittsburgh. More good preaching there now than there has been since, since I entered that presbytery 25 years ago. Wow. And uh, in, in, at presbytery itself, we haven't had a dud in years. Hmm. The preaching is edifying at presbytery. We, we could probably send you a couple of duds if you want <laughs> yeah, to well, that up. I remember I did had a lifetime of them, so I, I think I'm okay on the duds. <laughs> Uh, You've met your I've quota. Got plenty of them. But yeah, I think I think the combined effect of Haddon Robinson's book on preaching and Brian Chappell's book on preaching uh, is an, a, a generation now of preachers who are hitting almost all, if not all, of Dabney's cardinal requisites. And so uh, I'm actually very, very pleased currently. I still think what caused the bad preaching is right. My di- diagnosis originally, mm-hmm. that the media were shaping people, uh, I think was an accurate diagnosis. But for whatever reason now, uh, the younger men are preaching good sermons. Hmm. Now, 
T. David, we've spent most of the time talking about the preaching, which is just fine. But before we get to a conclusion, I'd love to talk about the, the hymnody and the congregational song as well, uh, why Johnny can't sing hymns. Now, folks who may not be familiar with the book and they read the title and the subtitle, they may think, oh, it's just another book that's talking about contemporary versus traditional worship. And I guess there it does relate to that in some regard. But really, what your book was getting at was... Why is congregational singing in today's church, why has it been so malaffected? Why is it, why is it in such a sorry state? So what do you think 15 years ago, and how, how are we now 15, 20 years later? Uh, musicologists, not musicians, but musicologists who study the history and philosophy of music and the sociology of music refer to the period from 1890 to 1930 as the revolution in music. Uh, so... Uh, the fellow up at University of Delaware in Wilmington who wrote uh, Selling Sounds, the Commercial Revolution in Music. Um, his book says that in that formative period of 40 years, the Industrial Revolution hit music, and music may be, became a mass-producible thing. Mm-hmm. So prior to that period, from Adam until roughly 1890, all music had a human attached. There was no way to divorce music from the person who made it. Mm-hmm. And the majority of one's musical experience from Adam until 1890 uh, was folk music. That is to say, if you didn't live in Vienna, Paris, London, or some other major metropolitan area, right. you would have never heard a symphony orchestra. The only music you ever heard was music the people with you produce. Mm-hmm. So hymnody is a subcategory of folk music. Mm-hmm. And the casualty of the 20th century was not cl- classical music. It's folk music. People are used to music being a commodity that they purchased yes. and passively ingest, as it were. And prior to that, it was something they produced. And so uh, the uh, how pop culture rewrote the hymnal was a deliberate title. If everywhere you go, you're pumping gas in your car, you hear pop music. You go inside to buy a Coca-Cola or a sandwich, you hear it. And then you go to shop for jeans, and you hear it. Uh, well, it's, na- it's natural as your native language is at mm-hmm. this point. It's, it's no longer just a medium. It's an idiom, right? So an 8-year-old boy in France today is speaking French. An 8-year-old boy in Pittsburgh is speaking something approximating English. <laughs> and, uh, and it wasn't because they chose it. That's just what they heard. Mm-hmm. So now we think this is what music sounds like. Right. And so it's not only that, con- that uh, mass-produced uh, commercial pop music ha- has shaped our perception of music and made us passive consumers thereof. Even when we consume it, we expect it to sound like that. Right. And that's why the title, you know, Why John Can't Sing Hymns. He can't sing hymns because he doesn't hear folk music anymore. Yeah. So what we hear Monday through Saturday is what we hear on Sunday. We also yeah. So it's it's almost a, the spirit. We talk about the spirituality of the church and what the church mission is and the proper scope of our uh, endeavor. Uh, maybe the spirituality of church music. Right. We've taken the sacred out of sacred music. So so we need to re-folk. Church music. Correct. So that we're not sung at, but mm-hmm. we sing together. You know, Sean knows my recent idea that our church, uh, everyone learn uh, three or four psalms. We can sing a cappello at the drop of a hat mm-hmm. at a church meal. 
mm-hmm. or during a congregational meeting or during the offertory or whatever, any event of the church, we can say, oh, we're going to sing our second song. And we do it. And, but, and I got that idea from Carl Truman here about three, four years ago, hmm. and he talked about that. He made the same mm-hmm. point, might have gotten it from you, about communal singing, folk singing, yep. that all singing used to be communal. There mm-hmm. just wasn't any other. Mm-hmm. Made exactly the same point. I don't know if you ever wrote about that. But so so we need to refolk the music and deprofessionalize it. That's one I mean that doesn't mean lower the quality. Right. But but turn it from a well, a worldly commodity that we can reproduce on our iPod or uh, well, they don't have those anymore. Right. <laughs> iPhone or our car. Um uh, into something that is distinctly Christian and Christian community, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. communal. Yeah. Re- and you may re- re- oh, go ahead, sir. You may recall in one of the early conferences here, Dr. Old was here. So Hughes Oliphant Old was here uh, for maybe the first two or three years. In fact, I invited myself the first time I came, <laughs> called David and said, if Hughes Old is going to be there, I'd love to be there. I'll, I'll wash dishes or I'll do something. <laughs> He'd let me lecture. But I just wanted to meet Dr. Old. Uh, and he is profoundly appreciative of the Reformation as the Reformation of the entire liturgy, not just preaching. Mm-hmm. And especially on hymnody, Luther wrote hymns, translated Latin hymns into German because the Mass, not being in the vernacular language, in the medieval Catholic Church, the priests were the only ones who sang because the people didn't know Latin. Mm-hmm. And so Luther thought the people were supposed to sing praise to God. And so the Reformation Dr. Old recognized was also a Reformation of the other side of the dialogue of worship. God addresses us in word and sacrament. We address him in prayer and praise. And so uh, the Reformation, he said, was a singing movement. Uh, and, and he was right. Uh, it really was. And so the irony now is the praise team has replaced the medieval thing because the praise team knows how they're going to vary verse 2 from verse 1, and right. what kind of transitions to make, whether repeat a line here and that kind of a thing. The rest of us have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so we've now surrendered once again our congregational privilege and duty to sing God's praise to the specialists up front who know what they're doing. Yeah, I, I call yeah. it the hum-along music. Yeah. You, you know, this sort of like in the, the Southern Baptist Revivalist Church growing up, well, y'all just joined me on the chorus. Right. You know, the, the, the song leader would, would basically do a solo, but oh, you all can sing all the, the, the chorus song, yep. How Great Thou Art. Right. And everybody felt great and spiritual, but you were being sung at. Yes. And, and it is an uphill but, battle. But was God being sung at? That's was the God question. Being, that's the question. Yeah. And, and you may have said this in your book, Dr. Gordon, or I may have picked it up elsewhere, but it is an uphill battle because culturally, we are a culture devoid of communal singing. Now, I mean, England, sure. They might sing at football matches and rugby matches. And they do. And they do. Yes. Both sides. Leeds tries to outsing the one on the other side. Yeah. Yet here in America, the church is one of the few places you might experience communal singing anymore. I mean, I was at a baseball game a few years ago, and even then, the seventh inning stretch, people were barely taking me out to the ball game. Right. It's our grandfather's generation, you know, they would go to the Rotary Club. And they would sing as a group of men at a a, a purely secular gathering. It's a way to be weird and countercultural. And it it actually works. Communal singing at church, Mm -hmm. a a church that sings loudly, people notice that. It's a a pragmatic marketing strategy, nothing else. It Mm -hmm. is a way to differentiate yourself in the church market. Yeah, when, when people who are not used to it come into a place where instead of 
the experts and professionals highly amplified blast at them, and they come into a group of people singing together, and they hear some harmonic parts, and they're also... Of all ages, no yes, less. right, of all ages. Uh, they almost always say afterwards, that was really neat, right? Because it is really neat. And that's what uh, heaven will be. No preaching in heaven, right? No sacrament in heaven with the Lamb's Feast, right? Mm. No collections for the relief of the poor, right? But there will be the singing of praise. Hmm. Read Revelation, right? Mm. That's, that, that is a fantastic And by the way, they're point. not only singing psalms, but I'm going to let that one go for the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and the no preaching in heaven sounds pretty good. <laughs> hey, that's all right. Well, I think we probably better wrap up. It's getting noisy in the hallway, and we may be uh, meeting with someone else in a, in a few minutes. But this has been wonderful. I hope, I hope hopefully it whets people's appetite for, for your work and for similar things. Yeah. It's, not, it's not about uh, selling books. It's about helping the church. Yeah, one, one would hope. So, Sean, why don't you wrap us up since this is also uh, your podcast, and uh, we, we really, we, we've really enjoyed this, I think. We have. We have. Folks, thanks for tuning in, whether you've listened via PresbyCast or whether you've listened via Larger for Life. We're so grateful to T. David Gordon for joining us this morning at the Reformation Worship Conference and getting an opportunity to think about why Johnny can't preach and why Johnny can't sing hymns, maybe a little bit in retrospect, looking down the, the corridor of time over the last 15, 20 years, how things were, how things are, and perhaps by God's grace where they might continue to improve here, at least in our little corner of the Lord's Vineyard. So we hope that you've enjoyed this, friends, and we'll look forward to having you join us next time. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.